The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. You are listening to Know the Score, presented by the CSPN. You can listen to us on a variety of platforms via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Podomatic. I'm your host, Tyler Ball. You can find me at T-A-B-A-L-L number one on Twitter. Joining me on tonight's podcast is my partner in crime, Don DeLaRente. You can find him on Twitter at Don DeLaRente. What's going on, Don? Hey, what's going on, Tyler? How are you? Well, you know, this is another episode of DC Falling, same as it ever was. Oh, man, this is a very sensitive subject to me because, you know, I root very hard for a couple of these DC teams. And I was hoping that the Capitals would actually turn it around and get over the hump this year, but unfortunately, it's not the case. Same old Capitals, even though they did fight hard. Um, uh, We're going to lead off. That's going to be the lead off for tonight. Um, We're going to talk about uh, DC DC falling pretty much. Um, Same scenario two years ago where you had a Capitals game seven, a uh, Wizards game five, and a Nationals uh, game. Nationals rally. National in 2015, Nationals rallied. The Wizards lost game five, and Capitals would lose game seven. And would you know, the same thing happens uh, on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, well, on Wednesday night, the uh, Capitals were. Capitals rally to for, to force a game seven against the Penguins. Uh, the uh, the Wizards headed into Boston for game five against the Celtics. Uh, they're falling behind 2-0. They blew out the Celtics in both games in D.C. Uh, both of those games featured 20-point runs by the Wizards and on to game, uh, game five. And meanwhile, the Nationals in the uh, Beltway series took on the Baltimore Orioles. So, D.C. was finally the center of the sports world for a while, and unfortunately, as we say, it it's D.C. sports. Um, the uh, I think D.C. leads all the metro areas uh, with the team without participating in a uh, – without having a championship. I think it's what um, – yeah, it's been a while. DC, DC has not had a championship since the Redskins in '91. Unless you count MLS. Unless DC, you count, yeah. Unless DC four, United. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, we, in the majors. In the four, four, four majors, yeah, '91. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Um, it just seems like the DC teams are always not ready for prime time. Seems like when the most eyes are on them, they seem to play the smallest so that's kind of been the case here with the Capitals when they were down 3-1 nobody kind of gave them much hope they were kind of left for dead and then they went on to win two games in a row forced to game 7 game 7 at home everybody's looking at them and they come up fairly small I mean the Penguins pretty much dominated them um, just, it's, it's just like wow it's, it's interesting because Washington's strategy to rally back from 3-1, uh, Coach Barry Trotz made the line switch moving uh, moving out of Sovechkin to the third line. And both the first line and the third line came up big. Uh, those, you know, uh, 
that got help from Nick back Nick Backstrom put in uh scored in games five and six. Uh Ovechkin even got into the act and started forcing the action. Uh Washington started to put pucks on goal and uh particularly in game six. Uh they just uh they literally dominated Pittsburgh. And, and yes, injuries, uh and this is this is really the more disappointing loss losses for Washington because uh for three factors. One, you have the president the back to back president's trophy winners. Two, you have the uh this is a weakened Pittsburgh team with um with Sidney Crosby being injured agents and people wondering if he was going to get back on the ice because he took a, a a hit a massive hit on the boards and we're wondering if it was a concussion but of course he returned for game seven and was an and made an impact notching an assist on the first Pittsburgh goal uh, by rust um, but the bottom line is that the caps just had so many chances but couldn't put one beyond up uh, and in the third period uh, the time where you expect them to really show up they managed eight shots and only four were legitimate chances. And it just, it just, they just looked listless. It's like they were, they were just mentally gassed. I think it's time and, to break it up, man. It's gotta be time. You know, I, I've been thinking about it. Um, and I think the salary cap is going to dictate how they're going to break it up. One, you have the expansion draft for the Vegas Knights, which means it's going to cost you probably, uh, Phil Brubaker, which is, who is the backup goaltender or, uh, or uh, or Orloff, who was a, who was a key, uh, he was a key part of the uh, capital defense. So you, go, you figure you're going to lose one of those guys. Um, you've got to decide who are you going to pay because a couple of, couple of wingers are due pay raises, uh, which means uh, you sign Brooks Orpic. So you got to figure out whether or not you're going to resign T.J. Oshie or uh, Varansky or you know one of those guys is going to have to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, assuming that you don't do what conventional wisdom says and trade the franchise, which is Alex Ovechkin, uh, you know it's going to be some interesting decisions that's going to be made. But I, I personally believe that Capitals will hold on to Ovechkin because of history. Um, they uh, let they, they led to it there uh, when Peter Bondra uh, retired and. Boy, you know, and they were left with nothing, and the Capitals suffered seasons, and they just lucked out and got the number one pick, which happened to be. Um, they still went through the same frustrations in the '90s with Bondra and you know, and even Yamir Yager, where they couldn't get out of the second round. So, I think if you you keep your star, a ridiculous offer on the table, uh, preferably a, a younger. A younger singer or a younger winger, or even a couple of young wingers or young center that you can build your franchise around. I mean, side with Edmonton, um, even though they lost a uh, game to the uh, to the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, uh, they've gone through a totally total rebuilding process with uh, built around uh, Connor McDavid, which after about five years of tanking. So uh, it just depends on what you. Do. I'm not sure if the Capitals. Uh, you look at you look at the LA Clippers situation. I said you're you're the only game in town, uh, your team when you're good. I mean, I know you want to win a championship. I know that's the goal. And um, why not just retool 
you have the Vetskin's going to be good for another three or four more years. Why not? Why not just retool instead of just blowing it up? And you know, because because a lot of times you don't get you don't get to be the benefit guaranteed to be the benefit of a major trade for picks and maybe of two or three players, which a Vetskin's obviously worth. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting it's, to see. I, I just thought that this was going to be their year. I mean, they seem to have a little bit more toughness than I was used to seeing them have. Um, the first round, they got tested a little bit, but then, you know, they, you know, handled a business gentleman sweep. And then coming into this round, you know, you get um, Crosby going down, and then they lose the game that he doesn't play in, and then you're like, oh, man, they're in serious trouble if, if that's going to be the case. And, um, you know, Pittsburgh, like you said, they just got some great goaltending, and uh, Russ being in the right spot at the right time when uh, they failed to clear. Just um, usually that's what happens. People make simple mistakes in the uh, right in front of the goalie, and they usually lead to goals. And that's how Pittsburgh got their first goal, and that basically was enough. The extra one was just icing on the cake. So we'll see going forward um, here in the Eastern Conference. We got Ottawa and Pittsburgh. What do you think, Tyler? Because Ottawa should be nice and rested. They didn't have to play a grueling series. They got to sit at home and watch Pittsburgh fight it out with Washington. Um, they've been pretty good. I got to see them in person a lot this year. Goaltending is pretty good. So that should be a pretty, um, you know, strength-on-strength series. Well, when you look at the Capitals roster, um, the key issue that they have is they signed uh, Brooks Orpik, who's 36, to a multi-year contract. But the majority of the team is pretty young. Uh, you know, they've kind of built through the draft and, and some, of, some off of free agency. So I don't think this is a Clippers situation where you, you sell the old guys. Um, you still have a have a core that you can build around. Um, you know, folks still got to get paid, but you know, so maybe you can trade one of your younger your younger wingers or one of your younger centers and see what kind of value you can get from them. Uh, as we move forward uh, to the other DC team, it's kind of weird, but when you talk about Wizards and Celtics, three ga- uh, three games, I'm sorry, five games, five all decided by double digits. It's I, I, this team, it's just weird. Um, um, I think it's just a thing of, you know, the role players playing their best at home and, and providing that extra spark for their superstar. So, like, in the game last night for the Celtics, Avery Bradley was on fire. Yeah, and 25 so, and a half. Right, so that allowed the offense to not have the focus on – Isaiah Thomas as much, and so now he becomes even more deadly because now he recognizes that Bradley is on fire. So now he's doing his driving with the intention to get Bradley shots, and now he can pick and choose later in the game when he wants to be aggressive or not because you got to be on your heels because Bradley just cuts you up for 25 points in a quarter. And and the the scary thing is that the Wizards didn't – well, it's not like the Wizards are making the adjustments – uh, quarter by quarter or half by half. It actually is game by game. Uh, the counter to double Taylor actually doubling Isaiah off the curl and, you know, getting are getting physical with him. And that's how they blew them, blew them out in DC. You know, Isaiah talks about getting calls and all of a sudden, you know, they, they kind of back off and they're not as physical. And Isaiah's all Isaiah has to do is just look off a, a, a defender that's coming off to the double team and the open man, of course, 
happened to be Bradley and he hit everything in sight. Now, as they go back to DC, uh, I wonder what the adjustment's going to be because somebody eventually is going to have to hit some shots off the bench for Washington. Uh, Boston's won this series. Boston's pretty much maintained this series on two things. Isaiah being being beyond uh, beyond uh, brilliant for three game for three other games and the Boston bench is totally owned the Wizards bench. Well, yeah, the uh, the the game where they didn't have probably their best player Ubre off the bench, they actually got a lot of contributions off the bench. And then the game where he was back in, uh, they pretty much got nothing. So, that just goes with the, you know, weird narrative of this playoff series, this particular Boston and um, Washington series. I, to me, the Wizards know that they don't really have that strong of a bench. They just don't have to fall behind. They just have to get. They have to find hidden points like offensive rebounds, free throws. You know, they have to find those little inside the game type things that can that can sustain the lead for them in those stretches where they do have to rest John Wall. I mean, I saw Brooks say he'd love to play him forty eight minutes. He's trying to get away with playing him forty, um, thirty six if you know on a good night. Um, right now in the playoffs, so he's well aware that you know he can't burn them out. But um, yeah, Washington's just gonna have to 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 get grimy to to, to offensive rebound, to draw fouls, and make the free throws, get and ones, things like that to kind of get those hidden points that you don't really show up in the score a lot of times. But they can you know just keep you in the lead or keep you down long enough where John Wall and Bill can rescue you after they get some rest. Yeah, I think that. Um... In order to, I'm, I'm just going to move ahead to Game Seven. Um, I think the Wizards will win uh, Game Six. So, in order to win Game Seven on the road, I think that John Wall and Bradley Beal will have to do the same thing that they did in Atlanta, uh, which is just attack the rim and just go for as much as you can. They may have to do what they did to close out Atlanta, which was score. They they combined for 73 points. Uh, in order to close out Atlanta on the road. But Boston's a little bit more physical, particularly on the guards, and they're going to have to get something from Marcin Gortat, who we have not seen almost all series, especially on the road. Um, somebody's going to have to be that third scorer, be it Gortat, be it uh, Markeith Morris, or even even a guy like a Jennings or even a, or Ubre or or Otto Porter, just somebody give you a third option that's going to hit a shot when you need to, when they when they decide to double up on Beal or they cut off Wall when he decides to penetrate the lane or when Wall, or if Wall's struggling and not hitting his perimeter, his perimeter or his mid-range jumper. Uh, somebody has got to step up for the Wizards to even have a chance to, uh, to knock off Boston on the road. Otherwise, it's, you know... Boston's going to be winning the series. I would really like to see Bradley Beal attack the basket a little bit more, try to go for layups a little bit more. I think he has more layups in the game than he actually pursues at times. I think a lot of times where he struggles in games from shooting his jump shot, he he, he definitely doesn't look to try to go inside and like get a layup or two or get fouled to get to the free throw line a couple times in a row. So I, I think that that would help out their offense and kind of – get him in the mindset where he can get going, you know, get a couple of easy layups, maybe a couple of pull up, you know, bankers from eight feet, just some easy rhythm type stuff. And then kind of expand your games to the outside and then see if he can get going. 
for the next two games. Because you're right, um, if things hold to serve and the home team wins and then the Wizards win game six, then game seven is definitely a toss-up. I mean, you're definitely going to need a defensive effort um, from everybody. And this, and like you said, somebody is going to be the the unsung hero, the person we don't foresee as being the the major reason why either team wins. You know, it could be Crowder. He hasn't really had a big series yet. Um, it could be Amir Johnson. He's kind of been the odd man out for Boston. You know, just somebody over there on their side that kind of could step up in a game seven that we haven't really heard a lot from. Or Look out for Rozier. Rozier exactly. had an excellent series. Actually, Rozier is one of the unsung heroes of the series because he's been able to hit some open shots and defend Bradley Beal when, when uh, Wall goes onto the bench. He gets the Beal assignment and has given him problems. Uh, that also allows Boston to go big on the perimeter when he's in because Crowder can can take can check Porter and then you can just swing around and you can also hide Isaiah as well. So uh Rozier's been huge. Um Al Horford has outplayed Gortat, which is another big factor in the series. Uh it seems like he's always around the ball and it's not the first missed shot, it's the offensive rebound and Horford has had a knack of that. And then several times, particularly in game five, where uh, game actually games, uh, games two and five, when uh, Boston at, was be, was trailing, it would be the offensive rebound that Horford would get. And he'd kick it out to Thomas for, for a critical three or Rozier or Crowder. I mean, it's, it was always Horford that was beating Gortat and, and sometimes Mark, uh, Mark Keith Morris to the ball. Uh, he's definitely going to be a factor when, uh, when we get to game seven. Um, somebody's got to block him out, and I don't care if it takes two guys for the Wizards to have a, you know, to have a chance. Uh, but uh, as we are recording right now, uh, we, we are checking out the other Western Conference semifinal um, action going on, which is between the Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs. And after the very interesting ending of game, uh, game five, where Houston, uh, where Manu Ginobili showed up and ended up making three critical plays to um, lead the Spurs to a win without the services of Kawhi Leonard for virtually the last four minutes of the fourth quarter and uh, and all of overtime, um, Ginobili stepped up, and actually, and Danny Green did also. Uh, as you look at tonight, uh, the the Spurs currently are up by; they've been up by as much as twenty five, pretty much all game long. Uh, they're going into the fourth quarter uh, with a pretty much a, a uh, actually they're up twenty four right now. Uh, as we look as look into the future, we can pretty much assume that the Spurs are going to knock off the Rockets and close them out this evening in Houston. Um, how would you think about a matchup between the Spurs and the Golden State Warriors without possibly Kawhi Leonard, who is not playing this uh, tonight? It's going to be hard for me to see him not playing in this game one of the series because, you know, they have so much space for TV. So it probably wouldn't start. Today is Thursday. Probably wouldn't start until like on a weekday. Next week, probably like Tuesday. So I think that would be enough time just for the series itself. 
I think it would be interesting. I don't know if if uh, San Antonio has enough people to guard everybody. Kawhi can't guard everybody. Um, Clay Thompson looked like he finally found his shot in the last game there in Utah. So that's scary because he hasn't really had a good game yet in the playoffs. Kevin Durant looks like he's, you know, doing kind of what's needed. He's kind of being the filler guy. Like, okay, you need me to rebound tonight. I'll rebound. You need to play defense. I'll play defense. Nobody's scoring. Okay, I'll pick up my scoring. So I, I just don't know without the leader and Tony Parker if they're going to be able to get away with uh, Patty Mills, um, you know, running point guard against Steph full time. Um, but Greg Popovich is a master, so he'll hook up something and he'll make it closer than it should be. And they'll probably go six games and the Orioles are, or will shake their head and say, you know, we're in a dogfight even though they won two games. And then we'll hopefully get the finals that we want. Yeah, um, I'm not seeing any, you know, without a, a quiet 100%. I really see a, um, I really see a sweep without a healthy Kawhi. I just see Golden State just having way too many weapons. Um, even in even inside with JaVale McGee playing probably his best basketball that we've seen uh, since he left Denver. Um, I, I think that this is going to be one of those rounds where Steph is going to have no problems with Patty Mills. I think that a healthy Kawhi. A, a less than 100% Kawhi against Kevin Durant is a mismatch. Uh, even if you go to the bench, who's going to who's going to keep up with Golden State if two guys are shooting well at the same time? Let's say you have Steph has a good night and Clay has a good night. That's a problem. Clay, what if if Steph and KD have good nights? That's a real problem because now you can't you you can't double. Uh, so it's, it's it's kind of a conundrum, and of course they have a better bench too because you got uh, you got Sean Livingston, who's probably one of the biggest mismatches in the NBA. And even if you don't play uh, their guard, uh, their guard uh, Clark, their second guard, you still have Iguodala to worry about, who's just as a defensive problem uh, for Kawhi as if even if they go big and put Draymond Green on Kawhi. So. There are a lot of options that Mike Brown has to play with. And, you know, Mike Brown's a defensive guy first. So he's going to be prepared for San Antonio. And I think that just without Tony Parker at 100%, this has sweet potential written all over it. Hmm. That'd be interesting. I don't know about sweep. I, I give uh, San Antonio a little bit more credit than that. Give him a little bit more fight and effort. It may look kind of ugly the first two games. But, hey, you know, first game of the season – you know, Popovich stunned everybody, and they um, beat them, you know, on their home court. So, you know, if anybody's got the key to cooking up something, it would definitely be Greg Popovich because he's definitely figured out what to do with the Rockets. Definitely Nene getting hurt has changed the series around and, um, you know, kind of handcuffed an already limited uh, Houston squad as far as bodies. And there are one less bodies who are already short, short rotation. Harold isn't getting any run. Decker isn't getting any run. So they're kind of running seven guys. And um, they're getting pounded because they're just uh, not relenting on uh, defense. You know, they're they're making they're bumping them hard on defense, making them work on offense. And then when uh, San Antonio has the ball, they're making hard and guard everybody. And um, 
and pounding them down low, making them guard big guys. He's either getting switched on Aldridge or Gasol, and he's having to take a pounding because they're taking him right to the paint. So um, Greg Popovich is a master. If he has more than you know a couple of games to kind of see what they're doing, he can pick up something to counter it, and then you'll have to counter his move, and a lot of guys can't. Just looking looking at the uh, the story behind the story, does this performance af- affect uh, people's opinion of James Harden? Uh, and now that Harden has kind of well kind of shown that the Rockets go as far as Harden goes, uh, you know, this has this will this change anybody's opinion about uh, Harden being the MVP? over uh, Westbrook. I mean, we know that we the votes are, are pretty much finished, but does this change the fan opinion or does this favor uh, Russell Westbrook even more, even more so? Um, I think at some points because of the long stretches of time in which his team could not score, it just magnifies what Russell Westbrook did with the cast of characters that he had because there are some times where you just kind of look at, the game and shake your head and go, he averaged a triple-double with these guys as his teammates? Whereas I think now over here with Harden, I I think it's just a kind of a mesh of coach, philosophy, GM, and a roster that's kind of put together to do the thing that they talk about. I mean, the Houston Rockets, they have no regard for the middle of the court. It's either dunks, free throws, or threes. That's their philosophy. Daryl Morey is Mr. Analytics, he has the perfect coach, and they've basically put together what they think is the perfect team to play modern basketball. But it still comes to find out you maybe need a true, true point guard to do what they're trying to do because at the end of game five, Harden was a little sticky with the ball, and they didn't seem to have the fluidity and the motion and the movement that you probably need um, that you would get from your, a, a guy who was a point guard who was running a team in those crucial situations like that. Kind of Harden reverted back to the old Harden where he was trying to be a finisher and not really a creator and facilitator first, which is kind of what was needed in that stretch of the game. So I know I didn't really answer your question, but it just kind of looks at the two schools of thought kind of where I'm coming from. So I I would kind of lean maybe towards Russell just because it looks like he had the harder chore for what he accomplished. It's already unfathomable to – average a triple-double for a season, but to do it with some very subpar teammates as a whole is even more impressive. I'm going to throw a little thing into the mix here uh, with Harton. Uh, flip Harton and Chris Paul and put Chris Paul in Houston. You think they're they're much better? Probably yes, even though it's one less quote-unquote three-point shooter. It's, it's a person who can facilitate the game and and is and better on defense. Not to mention that James Harden is still a liability on defense. So I know we like to look at just a game of basketball from an offensive standpoint, but you have to factor in some players' defense as well. So I think yeah, Chris Paul would be a definite upgrade, even though in theory it would take away one of their quote unquote three point shooters. But his ability to get into the paint would be just as good as Harden's. So they wouldn't lose anything there. And I'm, I'm, and the reason why I brought that up is because Paul is going to be one of the biggest free agents coming up this year. Uh, there's talk about him being in uh, possibly San Antonio if he decides to leave L.A., which personally I believe uh, he won't um, because, of, for one, the lifestyle. Uh, second, he has favor with Doc. 
uh, with uh, Doc Rivers. And third, cornerstone guy. And you don't trade cornerstones. You let them walk off, walk off on your own terms. And last but not least, you're the only game in town. Need a good draft this year, possibly a good draft next year, and another free agent signing for them to even be close to a playoff contender. So you've got minim- a minimum of three more years of being the good team in L.A. So why not take advantage of it, not break them up? And this is, and the reason why I'm bringing this into the Houston scenario is because, remember, the Clippers were literally a quarter away from knocking off the Rockets and going into the West Finals. And I just think that just they're in the same situation. The Clippers are in the same situation now that they were then. The Rockets are are still that same same team. You know, they're improved offensively, but Mikael still built that team as you know James Harden and shooters. So it's just interesting to see how these two teams, how the Spurs and the Rockets, are going to affect the moves in the Western Conference in the offseason. Meanwhile, as we shift over to the one team that's relaxing and waiting, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, I don't know what to think about them right now as far as matching up against Boston or Washington. I mean, we all know that what they're going to do is similar to Houston, let LeBron facilitate whether he drives or Kyrie drives, whether Kyrie finishes himself or he kicks it out to one of four shooters. You know, the the key is – when are they going to show up defensively? Yeah, you have to keep um, – it's either one or two methods. You either let LeBron go crazy and try to let everybody else just kind of stay, you know, kind of keep everybody else oppressed. Or you try to, you know, let everybody else get theirs and try to keep LeBron suppressed. And I think the second one is the hardest of the two to do. I think it's easier to let LeBron just kind of go crazy and just make him score, 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 keep his assist down. And you might have a better chance that way. But if he can get in there and, and do what he's been doing over the last couple of games where he's been almost averaging a triple-double plus getting almost 40 points a game, yeah, there's 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 nothing you can do unless you're going to just barrage him and, and just gun him out from the three-point line. That would be your only chance against Cleveland the way they're playing right now is just to outscore him from the three-point line. And I don't think either team has enough firepower to do that consistently, neither Boston no. nor uh, Washington. No, not four games in a row worth of three-point shooting. Maybe the the, the, the Warriors, yes, but no, not uh, anybody in the East. That's the reason why they haven't really been challenged. Is because you haven't seen any. You haven't seen that Sports Center game where you see one of these guys against Cleveland hit eight, nine threes in a game, and you know either you know keep them in the game until the end where they can win it, or you know blow them out because they haven't lost a game yet at all. I haven't really even been challenged except for the very first game uh, against Indiana Pacers where Paul George was upset that he didn't get the last shot. That's the only game that's actually been kind of <laughs> like, hey, we might actually might lose this game. The rest of these games have been just glorified practices. Competitive practices is what I like to call them sometimes. And, we, and you know, looking at their, their, their opponent after Indiana, uh, Toronto, which they swept uh, – you look at Toronto and Masai Ujiri, who's the general manager, um, spoke to the media uh, after uh, just a day after Kyle Lowry declared that he will be opting out. 
of his contract and be looking for a new team. And he's actually put out there that he wants to, he is thinking about uh, 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 looking for a team in the Western Conference, which immediately brings up San Antonio. Uh, that That's in the mix, not possibly the Clippers, if they decide to let go of uh, Chris Paul. Uh, Kyle Lowry has also mentioned Philadelphia, uh, a return home, as he is a, a graduate of Villanova University. Uh, now, uh, which would be nut, which would be ridiculous. Uh, n- n- no, I mean, man, yeah, Kyle, Kyle would want to go home, and they probably overpay him to come there. But no, he can't talk about Philly and winning championships. No, I don't. I don't know how their numbers work, and I know that uh, Holiday, you know, has a lot of standing in their community and things. And I know he just got signed again, but I, I, he would behoove himself if he would really want to go. If he really wanted to win, he'd go to the Pelicans. Because that's all they're missing is a scoring point guard to run the the offense that they need to run for Gentry and to have a point guard who can is just adequate from three point shooting. You know, thirty eight percent, thirty seven percent. Lowry fits the bill perfect. I think that that would be the team he would flourish the most at. To me, I don't think Tony Parker is going to go out on an injury. I think he's going to come back, and that next year may be his last year, but he's going to go out playing and not injured. So I think that it just meant the timing just might not be right for San Antonio to get Lowry this year. I'm all for, uh, me personally, I'm all for Patty Mills taking over the reins as being the starter for San Antonio. I know there are some weaknesses there. Uh, people don't feel that he is a point card. Uh, it would be kind of a trial by fire. But I think Mills is ready. I think Mills has shown that he can, he can handle the reins. He can uh, get it to the floor of the offense. Despite the fact that that last second shot, uh, Gasol botched the uh, screen and roll that was supposed to be called uh, with Mills. Uh, they had a perfect play, and Mills actually hit the shot, but uh, Harden forced him to uh, not get it off in time. But I think Mills can run the team, and I think that he's very adequate for guard. He's an adequate shooter, which is what they need. Uh, and he can also penetrate and kick as well. Um, I think he's ready. I just I don't know if Pop believes he is. Uh, right, Pop's played him, played him plenty of minutes to show that he can do it. So I'm, I'm, that's going to be very interesting how those uh, the point guards will move around in the Western Conference. Uh, but going back to the, the Raptors, uh, Masai Jiri went forward with the media and said that he wants to change the culture. Uh, usually when those words are used, that's speaking of a breakup or a coaching change. Uh, not to uh, not to speculate here, but I think a coaching change is going to happen, which would be crazy. Uh, well, I mean, Casey's come on, man. A, Casey's it a defensive guy. Casey's, and that's the problem. This isn't 1992 basketball no more. You need an, an, an offensive guy. Now, see, you could have a uh, you could do kind of like Steve Kerr, get you a okay. defensive coordinator guy like Mike Brown to okay. kind of help you so your defense isn't like D'Antoni where you're just out here with nothing on defense-wise. But at least, you know, so so if something happens, it's easier to take the defensive guy and put him in your place and have all your assistants do all the fun offensive stuff, and then he can just micromanage the defense. Then the other way around, have your – principal coach be a defensive guy and then be like, oh, look at this league where everybody's scoring 110, 112, and we're out here trying to keep the score down. No, you're, you're fighting against the tide. 
go ahead and up your tempo, play a little bit faster, and, you know, the defense that you do have will show up and you'll win more games than you you lose that way because you'll have more possessions. And if you're good on defense, you'll stop more people. I think that that if you're going in the NBA right now, if you're going with a defensive-oriented coach, that's like his number one thing, I think you're going into a losing battle. You need to have a guy who's offensive-minded and then has a good staff of defensive assistant coaches around. And I also believe that that's going to be a major issue. They have a personnel problem there, too. Uh, DeMar DeRozan is is a conundrum in this day and time because he's not a three-point shooter. He's Actually, there's a stat floating around that's he only uh, DeAndre Jordan in L.A. scores more two-point basket, more percentage of two-point baskets than DeMar DeRozan. Yeah, yeah. He's um, he's a guy who's like the Rip Hamilton of his era. He's really good from 17, 18, that kind of no-man's land right now of basketball, like I was talking about with the Rockets, the part that they don't value, the you know, the part that's in between the lane and the three-point line, and he's a killer in there, but that's not the way they're playing basketball these days. So, you know, fundamentally, when you're putting these teams together now, you have to try to account for what this guy can do, and he's not really fitting into what most modern styles are are, are are these days as far as how people are drawing up offense. Like right now, Pop, with the way that he's running San Antonio's offense with these two big guys dumping the ball in and playing off of that, I mean, that is like considered to be old-school Neanderthal basketball right now in this day and age when that was the norm seven years ago. All right, to close it out, um, we just took a uh, – this is on a final note. We saw that uh, – Starting on Sunday, the sports program E60 will replace the sports reporters. Um, sports reporters last week closed after 37 years of of uh, programming. Um, do you have any type of memories of the sports reporters and how that impacted uh, the way you looked at television or any ideas or did it introduce to, to you any of um, any announcers or commentators? Um, kind of have like a weird relationship as a kid, like pre teenager, hated the sports reporters. Oh, it was so boring, didn't get it at all. It was just in the way of NFL game day at the time, so that was always a, the mainstay. But then as a teenager, and I started kind of understanding sports more on the you know, writer level and things like that, it introduced me to Bill Roden and uh, Bill Conley and Bill Ryan and, and all of the Mike Lupica and, and, and all of these writers, Will Bond and Kornheiser and, and all of these guys around the country, Ralph Wiley, that, um, you know, were doing all these great things, Brian Burwell, just so many people through the years that were doing all these great things and that age when newspaper writers were the thing to be, you know, even way before television and ESPN was popular. You know, it was still the age where these guys were still breaking stories and scoops, and, and it was cool to hear their points of view from their national kind of view. And then um, Dick Schapp, of course, as the host, um, as I became more involved in sports, I figured, you know, found out how big of a role he played as far as, um, you know, 
interviews and being there for different African-American athletes as far as their fight for civil rights outside and inside of the, the lines of sports. He was always there as a champion um, for them. So, you know, with him being the host, it kind of like perked my interest as well. And then as an older person, it basically helped me do this podcast when I host it. I kind of try to use the, the sports reporters uh, motto John Saunders kind of used where hey I'm just here to kind of keep the car on the road and all these guys right here get a turn to drive and I just hold it you know then I just grab the steering wheel back when they start getting off the road and then we go on down the line and have a great show so yeah definitely be missed I'll definitely miss getting up on Sunday mornings um, checking out what they have to say about the big national stories um, so good run and just um, another way that media and things are changing at ESPN all right, as we close out, I just want to say that I will miss the sports reporters. Um, of course, that was a big deal for me, even as a uh, kind of as a teenager uh, going into my late teens. Um, I finally got a chance to uh, work in uh, sports capacity, capacity immediately as I entered North Carolina Anti University and uh, began an internship in the athletic media relations department. So I had to write, I had to write game stories. I had to write recaps. I had to preview, um, preview stories. And if I didn't have the sports reporters, I wouldn't have an understanding of how to write a simple story. Or as I, as later on, we would write features on, on particular athletes. Um, And some would be set nationally eventually. Um, but I had to do a project that eventually became the uh, Street and Smith's do- uh, documentary on basketball in North Carolina A&T being ranked the uh, number 62 program in NCAA history in basketball in terms of success. Uh, you know, that the sports reporters taught me how research matters in creating the story and the narrative and how you have to back up everything you say with facts or it appears to be, you know, out of order. So it allowed me to be more careful in my research, my stories, and it taught me how to ask the right questions when it came to interviewing people. And I definitely appreciate everyone involved. Uh, several of those reporters are still at, are very much active. It, there's, it's not a retirement uh, I even got a chance to hear Bill Roden, who's now featured on the undefeated. As a matter of fact, he has a scholar program at a few HBCUs. I actually had a chance to meet the Roden scholar today uh, at a function at A&T. So um, I'm glad to see that the youth are actually following in his footsteps. Um, For Don DeLaRente, for my producer, uh, Classic, for the CSPN, this is Tyler Ball. And now you know the score. <laughs>